We have so well, much. Okay, so we missed. We have to start off with a moment of silence. For Don Cornelius, who we missed, oh, would so have done this last week. We cannot let, you know, the passing of Don Cornelius go without a moment of silence. That's that's true. This should be the uh, <clears throat> the Soul Train podcast. Or we could just have a, a moment of mournful dog howling. I think that was a kid. <laughs> Even better, a kid who's never seen Soul Train cries out in pain for the passing of Don Cornelius. It's like Jim's version of In the Ghetto. It's 9.25 p.m. on Tuesday, February 7th, 2012. And that means it's time yet again for the Media Leper Bebop. Tonight, a bunch of stuff. Also, a bunch of things. I'm your host, Jim... And more stuff. Don't forget that. Oh, God, that's right. More stuff. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Jim Connolly. And with me, as always, Tim Gaskell. Uh, Unorganized, but here. And Kirk, who won 20 cents on the ponies, Biglione. Five dollars. I won five dollars and ten cents in the last race to add to my twenty. Oh, so you won five thirty? Yeah. How much did you win, Jim? Zero. Okay. I want you. How much did you lose? I don't know, like fifty or sixty bucks. I won some of that money. You know what? If I went to Vegas and came back only down fifty or sixty bucks, I'd consider that a victory. Well, yeah, because it's all about eating and drinking and being out at Santa Anita on a really nice day. It was a great day. Just like the Super Bowl was a great day. You, you think Tom Brady losing by four points thinks that's kind of like a victory? <laughs> no, I think that Tom Brady... Uh, well, you know what? Once again, Tom Brady goes back to Giselle, so whatever. Who, by the way, has his back. Oh, I, that's what I heard. Now, what did she say? Well, she basically said that if his receivers could catch catch passes, then they would have won the game, and you know it would have he would have won his fourth Super Bowl. No, she was basically she was blaming the the two receivers in that fourth quarter for dropping passes. But 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 didn't he complete at some point like sixteen passes in a row? Yeah, exactly. So he how- set a Super Bowl record, and then. In the fourth quarter, it all went to hell. Kirk, can you break the game down for us? Yeah, there was a Schedule C. There were (laughs) some additional filings for medical expenses. And uh, there were some some capital depreciation as well. I missed the first quarter because I had my tax appointment. So basically, I don't feel like I missed anything really. By the way, Kirk, you're a big, is it, are you a big Patriots fan or a Giants fan? I can never remember. I have no team. Are you AFC or NFC? I'm none of those. I have I football is dead to me. No, you do you pro, did you protest since the AFL NFL merger back in <laughs> 1967 or whatever? Was it goes way beyond that. Was it way before that? Why like, don't you like Wait, wait, wait. We should explore this. Why don't you like football, Kirk? I'm just not interested. I find it boring. Ooh. I don't know how that... Well, you're a baseball fan. How can you find another sport boring? <laughs> Just, I don't know. They run into each other. They stop. They huddle. They run into each other. They stop. They huddle. 
It's kind of like rugby. What is that? What is that? And you watch it for like, what? Some people watch it for like eight hours every day on the weekends throughout football season. All right. You know what the coolest thing in the entire universe is? Me? I do. I don't think you do. Nest. Okay. Yes. What, what is Nest? Okay, am I wrong, I'm Kirk? The, the thermostat? No, I, I have to agree with you. Nest yeah. Nest was the, was the smart learning thermostat, which figures out how you cool and heat your house and then just does it for it, you. It learns your preferences, and the interface is beautiful, and it was designed by the creator of the iPhone. Uh, the iPod, internet uh, connected, so you can access it from your, well, I would say smartphone, but your iPad. Yeah, your iOS device, if you have one, if you're not an Android user, like me. But eventually your Android, I assume, too. And yet, well, there's a couple things. One is it's very new, so a lot of people don't know or care. And, and, and thermostat... Well, it's been, it's been sold out. They haven't yeah. been able to, it was sold out in advance. They can't make enough of them. And they may never make enough of them now. Well, how much does it run? Anybody know? Like two fifty. Well, it's like a hundred. Is it is it two fifty? It wow, sounds expensive, but when you look at the other high end uh, smart, uh, and there are a, a few in the high end smart internet connected thermostats, and they're sort of like the camera phone on Flight of the Concords, where Brett taped a camera to a phone. They're sort, of <laughs> someone, they're sort of like someone taped an Android phone to a thermostat and called it a smart thermostat. They're hideous. And this Nest was beautiful. And, and by all accounts, I mean, the interface and the internet connection and its ability to learn your, your preferences, it was going to be like a revolutionary thing at kind of a reasonable price because some of those other smart thermostats go for like $200 more than the Nest was selling for. Best Buy has the Nest, uh, at least on their website, for $250. Now, do you does it take batteries, or do you have to install it to your electric? <laughs> yes, it takes batteries, Tim. You walk around with it, and you have to recharge the batteries. It's a goddamn thermostat. It goes in your wall. Tell I know, but, mine, but my thermostat runs on batteries. Well, the batteries I mean, the, the are probably dis- a backup. Your well, the display is the display runs on batteries. The actual the internal stuff is plugged in, obviously. But you, do you have the Ecobee? The what? The Ecobee? No. You gotta look. Go to Amazon and look at the Ecobee. It's hideous. I will do that. Ecobee. It's like, it's like Durosport made a smart thermostat. So apparently Honeywell this week has uh, filed lawsuit alleging patent infringement by Nest, which after – now, this is like you were saying a, a week after they said, eh, we were doing that, but we didn't think people would like it. So right. What's... They made, they made ther- smart thermostats, and they were telling GigaOm, a GigaOm reporter, that they weren't really interested in the market because their experience was that consumers don't want this kind of thermostat. And then – a few days later, they turn around and sue Nest, a startup, for patent infringement. So is this a, a case of they want to get back into the market, or they just feel like they don't want anybody to be in the market? Well, the crazy thing is, if you look at what they created that consumers allegedly rejected, the experience was inferior. Of course. So look at the thermostats they put out today. The thing that they didn't patent was the interface that makes it desirable. 
And yet, now that a company has come along and done it in the right way, they're suing the hell out of them. So, but but isn't this a little bit like somebody suing uh, a car manufacturer for putting yeah, a really it, new body on it uh, uh, over it an wheels, engine? Yeah, yeah, and wheels. It, it just seems like this I, this is a, a harassment lawsuit more than anything else. There, there's nothing in this that could be considered like unique. There's nothing, um, you know. A, it's a thermostat. And B, it has um, internet connectivity, and C, it has you know intuitive uh, controls. And well, it's like, it's it's like a, a smartphone if it was a yeah, thermostat. You can't. There's no way they could. I, I really don't think they have much of a uh, a fight here because it's too yeah, much. They're, they're they're gonna they're going to at least gouge Nest for a big chunk of of whatever kind of margin they have. Or even if they don't have a margin, they're just going to get. If Nest is allowed to exist, Honeywell probably has just with the way the patent, and this is what it leads to, is the way the patent system works breeds this kind of activity. Um, I think that Honeywell is probably going to get a big piece of um, of the action. In the same way that Microsoft is making like you know three dollars off every Android phone that's sold. Hmm. Through, through patent negotiations, which started as patent lawsuits. So the lawsuit's basically just an overture to get a piece of the action. Yeah. That's, I mean, from the consumer standpoint, we probably don't really care as long as we have the access to... Well, except that it, that, that fact it, it really kind of uh, has a chilling effect on the marketplace. Less, fewer people <laughs> are... Effect. Are fewer people are likely to try things that they are afraid you know they might get sued over, and um, you know Nest might decide that the economics don't work out, and maybe you know with what we would have to pay Honeywell, we can't afford to be in this business, so we'll tr- do another business. All I know is I want one. It's one of those things where everything about it is right. It makes mm-hmm. total sense, and we're in an era where we need to be smarter about things like energy and 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 it, you know, the time is right for something like this uh, but it's one of those things you have to actually live with it's all about it's all in the details but it's probably better than what I have because my I have one of those um, kind of digital ones that you have to program and everything and it's a bit of a nightmare to, yeah well uh, that's the thing nest was saying is that they did some study and they found that you know like a billion programmable thermostats have been sold and only 10% of them have actually been programmed so if you programmed your thermostat once Tim you're like in the in the minority you're like the 10% Tim see I've programmed uh-huh. and reprogrammed and reprogrammed my thermostats you're the 1% Jim well of course you're the 1% of thermostat programmers you are not the market for Nest I'm totally the market for Nest because I would rather rather not have to, I'd rather have it learn my patterns because I have to like turn it off on the weekends when I'm home and I don't want to deal with the programming because the programming is for the weekdays when we're not at home half the th- half the day. You know what? Actually, Kirk, I think Jim should get a free Nest as a user tester because if if he can use it and it not explode, it's a perfect product. I was just thinking that whenever anyone complained about the temperature, he could always blame the nest. 
It's not me. It's the nest. Oh, yeah, but you know what? No one's going to believe that. <laughs> I, I, yeah, gentle listeners, this is this is a, a dig at me because I prefer temperatures slightly cooler than most other people. No, that's why, not why it's a dig at you. It's a dig at you because you have a preference and everyone else has to address accordingly. Bow down to that preference. You can always put on more clothes. You can't take off more clothes. Is there anything oh, I, I can eat in this restaurant? Food. What? Is there anything I can eat in this restaurant? <laughs> Technically, you could eat anything in this restaurant. You have no restrictions. It's the same thing. Yeah. Yes. If anybody, if anybody wants to know, every time I go over to gyms, even in the summer, I always wear an extra layer of clothes. And you it's bring that meat. Cold. I... You bring red meat. No. That I, he can grill. I lightly, don't. Lightly. You might. Because it's got to be... I can bring it as a as a, uh, as, as a house gift, but... Oh, yeah. It's a good house. What cut is the best house gift, Jim? Oh, ribeye, of course. Ribeye. What's the difference between ribeye and prime rib? Um, prime rib is just the roast version of ribeye, basically. So it's the same cut? Basically. Oh, okay. Jim should have been a butcher. No. I, I'm i the biggest hypocrite in the world when it comes to this. I don't, I, <laughs> yeah, Jim is not exactly Ted Nugent. Yeah, I, I let somebody else hunt the cows down and cut them all up. <laughs> and uh, Ted Nugent is very good with the crossbow. He can kill a cow from like 100 yards with a crossbow. That's pretty amazing. He's the Motor City Madman. I'm just some asshole from Fresno. That would have been the quote of the week back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> While Honeywell is trying to block a nest, Netflix makes their first foray into the content game with Lilyhammer, this weird show starring Steve Van Zandt. Did anybody, did you guys watch this? Watched the first episode last night. So I liked it. I, I did too, but, but man, Steve Van Zandt has one... <laughs> Expression. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. he's playing a guy that those guys have one expression. It's so <laughs> perfect for that role. It's Silvio Dante goes to Norway is basically what it is. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Except HBO doesn't have a piece of it, and that's what makes it. That's part of what makes it revolutionary is that this is happening outside of the traditional power structure right. by which these kinds of programs are supposed to come to the public. And the second part is, it's all out there. Watch it whenever you want. All eight, ep- eight episodes. Finish it all in one night if you want. That is awesome right there. I mean, hopefully the quality stays up. It's it's kind of weird because except for Steve Van Zant, who really is a cult figure, there are no people that you've ever heard of or seen or, or, or know about connected with this project at all. Well, there's what? Sven Norden and <laughs> um, Marianne Sastad Ottesen and Tron Falsa Arvag. These are all the great Swedes. Tim, I mean, is... Norwegians. <laughs> I was just Norwegian. hoping. <laughs> they, you know, they all look alike. <laughs> all those white people look alike. <laughs> <laughs> Well, their names all sound alike. 
Isn't there some investment though? It isn't like isn't some of it coming out? Because didn't it debut on Norwegian TV? Yeah, Norwegian TV. It's a co-production between Netflix and like NRK or whatever. So on one level, it just seems really weird, and on another level, it's completely revolutionary, which I guess is kind of the same thing. Well, what's what's interesting is did, isn't Hulu doing an, a? Aren't they doing a unique series as well? I think they've got like a. Um, they they have a political um, show, and I will find it. Okay. Anyways, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> what are you using to find it, Tim? Um, I want to know, but inside inside this is like a behind the scene. You can cut Jim. You can cut this in and do like a behind the scenes. This is like when they do behind the scenes on on uh, Doctor Who. <laughs> this is oh. Like, <laughs> It'll be like a commentary track in the podcast. Tim, what do you use for research during the podcast? The internet. <laughs> <laughs> to be totally honest. Oh, well, I can't find it right now. But I had it up earlier. That's weird. Huh. The internet fails again. Is is this the beginning of Netflix really, really digging in the content? I mean, they didn't develop them themselves. They licensed it, and no one else took a chance on it. So is, A, that a reflection of the quality of the show, and, B, just to, a, or, or did Netflix outbid anybody else for it? It's a combination of things, I think. Aren't they doing Arrested Development? Yes. Isn't that the way it worked yeah. out? So. so. So, yeah, I think we're seeing the start of a trend where, you know, if the, especially if the shows are popular or turn out to be, but they can build new franchises just like anyone else. It's the power structure is getting extended. They don't have to bid against or they don't have to they don't have to go to HBO who won't give them the Sopranos. They can develop equivalent content. I'm they can develop Sylvia Goes to Norway. <laughs> I'm not saying this is going to be as great as the Sopranos, but this is their first series. We're seeing we're witnessing a shift. I watched the first episode and kept thinking, this is historic for multiple reasons. And I was just glad to see Steve Van Zant's amazing frown. <laughs> and and the, diff- the various permutations of that frown where he can bring it up a millimeter or down a millimeter, depending on the situation. But hey, he's going to stretch. In this series, he's going to own a bar. But he's not going to be the owner. He's going to be kind of behind the scenes. I make fun of Steve Van Zandt, but I love Steve Van Zandt, so that's awesome. But it's still on the, okay, we'll see what happens list. Yeah, but there's there's this. it's like the series for what it is as a TV show and the series for what it represents as in terms of the shift in the power structure in, in modern media. And I'm like, you know... I, so I, I'm like you. I enjoyed the show. There were some parts of it that were not perfect. I hope it turns out to be really good. But like, this is a change. Absolutely, absolutely. And for that, and just because of that, just because they were able, they just put everything out there and let people discover it at their own pace. We should support it just for that. So Tim. Yep. Madonna Super Bowl halftime go. Madonna looked a bit like she was, um, I don't know what it was. The whole performance seemed a bit, everything nowadays is quite frenetic and fast-paced. It seemed kind of slowed down, and I don't know if they were taking into account her 50-plus years or whatever, and uh, also the audience and their 
you know, the, the fact that the audience for this Super Bowl goes from very young to very old, and you kind of have to hit a middle ground so you're not offending people. With, or, or a middle finger ground. <laughs> or a middle finger ground, yeah, exactly. Um, so Madonna, you know, it was it was fine. It was Madonna, but I just found it kind of a bit slow and kind of laborious and kind of not as frenetic as a normal Madonna show. But then it was kind of enlivened a bit by Nicki Minaj and MIA, especially with the flipping of the finger, which I didn't even notice at the time. No, neither, nobody nobody so noticed cool. it until somebody noticed it on, on their TiVo, and then suddenly people who didn't see it the first time were up in arms about it. Right. Um, you know, <clears throat> there's a chance Jim's uh, TV runs slow. Runs slow? Well, because, you know... You were saying this Madonna person was kind of slow. Well, just—I don't know. There was just the whole pacing of the thing was very. Well, Jim's uh, TV runs slow. Maybe her heels were too high and wobbly. Yeah, and she did almost slip. Remember when she was on the top of that back at the back of the stage or whatever? At the top, she did kind of slip and recover. So that may not have been an age thing. That may have been a, a costume miscalculate, a costume malfunction. Another costume malfunction, yeah, but not one that gets you censored and fined. Right. So my other question is, Kirk, you're a long-time huge Madonna fan. What did you think? Which one was she? <laughs> she was the one in that movie, you know, the one? Desperately Seeking Susan. Desperately Seeking Someone? Yeah, that one. I don't think I saw that movie. You never saw that? She doesn't sing in it. He wouldn't admit. Yes, she does. Well, doesn't she dance to her own song in a club? Something like that. But it's, it's not a musical or anything like that. Jim and I went to the... Well, you were at the IBS convention in, what, 1982? Or was it 83? It was 82. 82? Was, no, 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 it was 83. It was 83. It was 83. 83. 83 and, but you weren't there when the uh, Warner Brothers rap uh, pulls Jim and I into a suite and says, you guys got to see this. And he shows us the video for, what the hell was that song? It was either Lucky Star or Borderline, probably. Yeah, one of those goddamn songs. Like, she's going to be huge. (laughs) Well, was he wrong? (laughs) Well, no, he wasn't, but... I mean, this is like this is like saying the Beatles were going to be bigger than Elvis, some some A&R. And we're we're like there, and I'm like, I have no interest in this. (laughs) So you guys think you're going to play this? No, I don't think we're going to play this. I'll bet you... Some people did. Well, you know, we did have like a virgin. I'm sure, some people did, but it was not a you know. Uh, well, it was clear from the beginning that Madonna was Madonna. The moment I saw her, I knew she was Madonna. The moment you saw her. In the video, whatever the hell that song was. Okay. Lucky border or like a star. <laughs> Borderline. Like a like a border star. Don't you feel like Kirk's protested a little bit too much, Tim? Yeah, it's kind of yeah. I mean, I'll, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. I'm just saying. Okay, it's not my thing. I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying there's, you know. And now it's time to bring back an old feature, but newly relevant. It's the Coco Crisp Afro Watch, Kirk. So, baseball season is upon us. This is the best thing about the Super Bowl is when it ends, we're just counting the days until pitchers and catchers report. The Uh, Oakland A's have announced on their schedule, promotion, 
June 17th, my birthday. Also happens to be Father's Day. It's the best giveaway ever. It's the Cocoa Crisp Chia Head. <laughs> what? <laughs> On Father's Day, which also happens to be my birthday, the Oakland A's are playing the San Diego Padres in Oakland. They're giving away Cocoa Crisp Chia Heads. I'm That's stunned. Not, I think you're all speechless. <laughs> well, I'm just trying to imagine: is it a is it a is it a chia bobblehead or is it just a chia head? I don't know if there's going to be a bobble, but it's going to be Cocoa Crisp, and he's going to have a chia head. So let me, get, I, let me let me make sure I understand this. So at some point before this off season started, the A's had potentially uh, pitching prospects who are pitchers who could replace the big three and be as good of a staff as they ever had. But now what they're grasping onto to bring people to the ballpark, to the, to the failing giant travesty of a ballpark that the, the, the Alameda County Coliseum now is, is Coco crisp chia pets, chia heads, chia heads. Okay. And first of all, it's working. Oh, because season tickets this, are up. The sampling of A's fans we have on this podcast, it's working. I'm going to point out that so season tickets have doubled into into and, triple figures. And and, <laughs> and and second of all, this may have been part of the negotiation that brought Coco Crisp back to Oakland. Because remember, he was a free agent. He could have gone anywhere. He chose the team that's doing the Coco Crisp Chia head. Oh, wait, because wait, teams wouldn't promise that. Tim, that's why he's in Oakland. Tim, do you Tim, do you yeah. actually think that Coco Crisp could have gone anywhere? I think he could have gone to any other team in baseball that was in except Oakland, for, <laughs> except for all other teams other than the Oakland A's. But he could have gone you're, to you're those totally teams. underestimating Coco Crisp, and I understand that because you watch the Giants. No, I'm 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 completely <laughs> estimating the tastes or the 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 talent scouts. Of the other teams, I, I, I don't think Christmas. he's definitely no. not underrating Coco Crisp. He's perfectly rating Coco Crisp. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. We will see. How many How many World Series uh, rings does Coco Crisp have? He has one with the Red Sox. He was with the Red Sox. Yeah, I remember him in that Red Sox series so vividly because they kept cutting to him on the bench. <laughs> He was hidden behind David Ortiz, okay? You couldn't see him. Exactly. Because he didn't have the fro then. If you had the fro, it would have you know, been popping out from behind David Ortiz. People would have thought it was David Ortiz's fro. Right. And now it's time for In The Mix, where we talk about the music we've been listening to. This week, it's my turn. Yay me. First off is a new album from Cleveland, Ohio's Cloud Nothings called Attack on Memory. Produced by Steve Albini, it reminds me of what the Days of Wine and Roses would have sounded like had the Dream Syndicate considered the replacements in Who's Could Do classic rock instead of Bob Dylan and the Velvet Underground.
marks on the pigs and the sheep or the shows I'm alive Except for the inside But I don't know nothing After that, it's a solo album by Craig Finn the lead singer of my current favorite band, The Hold Steady. His album is called Clear Heart, Full Eyes, and as you might expect, it's heavy on the words and the stories he's telling. It's far more low-key than The Hold Steady, of course, so if you're coming to it expecting the big riffs and the big chants, you're going to be disappointed. But in the end, I think, Finn's way with words and tunes are too compelling to ignore. When all those creeps came after me, paid off all my bills. Got a new friend, I'm a new friend, his name is Jesus. Drove around all summer long, we parked behind the bars Got a new friend, I'm a new friend, his name is Jesus People say we suck at sports, but they don't understand It's hard to catch what holes right through your hands And finally, a leftover from last year that I missed until the very end of this year, Slave Ambient by Philadelphia's The War on Drugs. I love this record, and I love its swirling psychedelic folk rock that meanders around a lot, but ends up always seeming to meander forward. Oh, sir! Just one more thing. One more thing. Tim. My Seinfeld year. Has anybody read this yet? No. Fred Stoller was um, <clears throat> a, kind of a uh, an actor, writer, who got a writing gig on the Seinfeld show for one year. Um, the last but, year? <laughs> no, it wasn't the last year. It was like 94, 95, I think. Or oh, good. And he just recounts in, in a Kindle single, which is a great, great... Um, cheap way to buy um, these they do short stories and short nonfiction this way I've, I've bought a few of these and I, I love the idea of it and it's perfect for the Kindle as opposed to uh, you know printed form it it probably uh, it probably runs about 30 or 40 maybe 50 printed pages I would guess but it's um, it doesn't take that long to read but it's just a it's a very nice insightful story into the trials and tribulations of a actor stroke comedian stroke writer and i do recommend it so my seinfeld year by fred stoller it's getting great reviews on amazon and uh i give it my five stars uh, thumbs up awesome one more thing kirk you know my parole date is coming up at the end of march oh no i didn't I didn't want to ask. Yeah. But yes. My uh, Android parole date, that is. Ah. So, you know, I'm going to be looking for a new phone. I don't know. I might get another Android. God. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm now hearing these things about the Google Glasses. Have you heard about the Google Glasses? Yes. These are augmented reality glasses. Oh, okay. That... Um, you wear the glasses, and then you have a data overlay on the world that you're seeing as you're walking around. Hopefully, you won't wear them while you're driving. And hopefully, they're not powered by Android. These are the Terminator glasses. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And you've been able to do this with uh, smartphone apps for a while, but this would be uh, 
uh, a, a thing that you know is actually there all the time while you're walking around. So it would be uh, the potential is interesting. I just think it may be a little bit too early, especially for a company like Google, based on my personal experience with Android, to be releasing something like this in the wild. But the rumors. You know how rumors are, so we don't know how accurate this is. It's a great record. Um, that um, um, we'll be seeing these sooner than we expect. Uh, so prepare yourself for the Google glasses. Awesome. We're going to see see people walking around with these, like running into things because they haven't perfected the technology. Rebooting, mostly. So people standing stock still while their glasses reboot? Force close. Force close. <laughs> <you> <laughs> You don't understand because you're having. And then looking up and looking down and. One more thing. In the 1980s, the most important things in the entire universe to me were girls, music, booze, and Dave. When I first discovered David Letterman in 1983, I think it was when he had REM on, it was like a door snapped open in my head. I already been watching late night TV on the weekends, Saturday Night Live, SCTV, Friday Night Videos, and hell, even Fridays. But weeknights, that was the province of Johnny Carson, who, you know, was for my parents. But Dave? Dave was for smart-ass, cynical college students. And I fell absolutely and totally head over heels in love with his groundbreaking combination of irony, wit, and utter silliness that he displayed every single night on every single broadcast of Late Night with David Letterman. So for years and years, until the end of his run on NBC, I taped Dave every single night and watched him the next day. Throughout of all the absolute and utter torment of my 20s, one of the few things I could absolutely be certain of was that David Letterman would make me laugh. It's so hard to try and explain this nearly 30 years, well, 30 years later, when so much of what he did, the lists, the viewer mails, the tricks with camera, the rock bands playing contemporary rock songs, the indie music artists and offbeat guests, the stupid pet tricks, all these things have now become part of the lexicon, the operator's manual of not just late night TV, but of talk shows in general. So of course he changed, and I changed, as we all do. His show got bigger and took less risks, and eventually I fell out of love with his show. But if I'm being completely honest, I'll never love a TV show like I love that show, or quite possibly any type of entertainment ever. I still watch his show occasionally, but only when he has an interesting guest on. How about you guys? What do you think about David Letterman and his 30 years in late night? Well, I've always just <clears throat> been a casual fan. I've never been uh, a regular watcher. Like, I will watch, I will TiVo it or whatever when there's somebody interesting on. Back in the old days, I never used to stay up and watch it, and I couldn't be bothered to tape it. So I'd only watch it when I was over at your place. But I always enjoyed it when I did. And sometimes, I think when I was in England, they showed it uh, at hours that were um, a bit more uh, sociable and I could watch it but um, overall I, I always dipped into Dave I always loved Dave but I always dipped into him because I never I was never a late night TV guy anyway those were only things that I tuned into when I woke up after I crashed and and, and back in the in mid 80s it wasn't even on until 1 because cause, uh, Channel 24 would run Carson's Comedy Classics at 12.30 it was right. morning programming for me I was just waking up. Right. I would wake up, would wake up with Dave because I worked the graveyard shift at the Fresno Bee back when I started in the news distribution business. <laughs> I watched Dave every morning with my breakfast, and, um, and this was before the DVR. Uh, but 
to me, this show is Dave's new show because I was watching him. I watched his daytime show. Do you remember his daytime show? I know it existed, no. and I know I knew about it, but I never saw it. It ran for a short period and got killed, but he basically was starting down the same path, but during daytime, if you can imagine that. It was crazy. But I feel the same way you do about it. I don't watch it. I mean, it's still in our mix on like a three-day. We save the last three days in case something happens that we have to see, which when was the last time that happened? But still... Um, Every once in a while, we'll watch it, and it's still pretty good. Have still you? Pretty good. Have it, you? You guys saw them, right, Kirk? Did you got you and Cassie go see a, a Letterman we, taping? We went, we went to a taping. We were in New York for the TOC conference, and we had it was Valentine's Day, day after the conference ended. We had no plans. We walked out onto uh, out into Times Square, and someone says, "Hey, do you want tickets?" And I'm like, headed the other way because that's a scam. Do you want tickets? Right. I, as I'm running away, I hear her to say, to Letterman? And I'm like, yes. Who yes. <laughs> want tickets to Letterman? So we didn't even have to make reservations. We got in. It was pretty cool. <sighs> so I may be one of the few people in the history of the universe who, are th- who was thrown out of the Ed Sullivan Theater just before the taping of a David Letterman show. Because you were Why so is that drunk? <laughs> no, I wasn't drunk. <laughs> Wait a bad steak. No, um... Well, I, here's the thing, though, is unlike you, Kirk, we had we got tickets like three months in advance. Like we, I called in to the phone number, and they called me back and said, "You have tickets, and you can go to the box office and get the tickets." And two nights before the show, I we never I'd never been to Manhattan before, and I ate something that didn't agree with me, and I got the worst case of food poisoning. I've ever had in my life. I was actually coming back from Brooklyn on the subway, and I was one of those people that if you sat down next to on the subway, I was shaking so bad, trying not to, just shaking so bad on the subway that that, that you wouldn't want to sit next to me, and poor Rocks, of course, had to. So I was sick for two days straight, but we still thought, this is Dave. I mean, I saw Dave in 89. I saw him tape the ninth anniversary show. He drove down to Universal City in, 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 in Hollywood and saw that show with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and Dave rode it on a horse and all this stuff. But to be in New York and see a taping at the Ed Sullivan Theater, I thought was something special. So even though I was sick, I thought, I will tough it out. I will be able to find a bathroom whenever I need a bathroom, and what I didn't understand was the – did you guys go through this, Kirk, where the, the whole audience prep is incredibly structured? Oh, yeah. That's what they do. Yeah. That's, and they, that's, that's uh, the way it works. It's a formula. Yeah. And so, and so they assign you your seats and they try to get you all pumped up and they tell you you have to do this and you have to do that. And you, you walk across, to the, to, across the street from the Ed Sullivan Theater and then everybody walks in a big group clapping their hands into the Ed Sullivan Theater. It was very weird and very stagey. And as someone who was sick, I was trying to deal with it. I was kept hoping when you are when you're sick, you keep thinking, this is the last time I will have to use the restroom. Every single time, this is the last time I have to use the restroom. Well, Jim. Yes. I have to use the restroom. During I'll the right I'll be right back. During the warm-up comic, 5 minutes before the show starts, I am seized with, well, we all know, and I said, "I'm sorry, I really have to 
use the restroom. And they hustled me out of my seat, hustled rocks with me, and basically, instead of taking me to where the restroom was, took me, threw me out into the alleyway behind the Ed Sullivan Theater. By the way, in the rain, it was raining. So no restroom, still have to go. And Rox and I run across the street to a Dunkin' Donuts, and we don't see the taping of The Late Night or, or The Late Show with David Letterman. They, they with, with no ceremony whatsoever, they just threw you out and... They basically, threw, they basically hustled us out the side door. Because you were about to interfere with the broadcast. I was in the audience. I'm not like it's not like I'm in the broadcast. Yeah, but that, it's just, any kind of taping like that. Once you're in your seat, they don't let you leave. There, it's like you're. It's like one of those um, one of those S seminars or whatever, where they lock the doors and you have to stay there for five hours. They they do not want you to leave once it gets going because that can hold up the either make extraneous noise or hold up the production or something. So. They get very, very nervous when people do that, and thus they will just fill your seat with someone else. Which is exactly what they did. So on one hand, I miss seeing a live taping of the David Letterman show, and I think like Tom Waits was one of the gates. No, that's not right. Somebody really cool was one of the guests that night, so I missed that. But on the other hand, very few people have ever been thrown out of the Ed Sullivan Theater. Yeah, you do have that on your resume. <laughs> That you should put that in special skills, special skill set. I I I'm the only one to get thrown out of the Ed Sullivan Theater. Yeah, maybe not the only one. Like maybe Art not the Carney, only one. Art but, Carney got thrown out once. But it's an elite group. Yeah, me and Art Carney. Those are we're two longtime professional entertainers. There you go. And that does it for Media Loper Bebop episode thirty. Thanks again to my co-host Tim Gaskell. Thank you. And Kirk Biglioni. Yes. And I'm Jim Connolly, and we'll catch you guys again next week. Same Bebop time, same Bebop channel.